From Luminary Media and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Brian Cornell, CEO of Target. I will always remember having to walk up the stairs to start that presentation, and each step looked like it was about 10 feet high. I watched the stock price decline, and I spent a little time on air at lunchtime with the media. And one of the final questions was, Brian, how long do you have? Will the board support you? Do you think you'll be here next year? How Brian Cornell led Target out of several disasters, including one that still poses the biggest threat to brick-and-mortar stores. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you ever get to Chicago, I highly recommend the architectural boat tour along the Chicago River. Pretty much every great architect on Earth has a trophy building somewhere along the water. And one of the most impressive buildings is actually one of the oldest. It's called the Merchandise Mart. And in 1930, when it opened, it was the largest building on Earth. It was built as a kind of temple to commerce. In fact, just outside the entrance, there are eight bronze busts of men who were titans of retail in their day. Frank Woolworth, Marshall Field, Aaron Montgomery Ward, Edward Filene, Julius Rosenwald. These guys were so powerful, so influential, that it would have been hard to imagine a world without their brands. And yet today, the companies they founded are either dead or on life support all pretty much cautionary tales for any brick-and-mortar enterprises operating in the 21st century. Because brick-and-mortar is just so much more expensive than e-commerce. It's why Amazon's value today is greater than the entire consumer packaged goods industry combined. And that power has put immense pressure on big box stores, pressure not just to compete, but to grow and thrive. It's a tall order for any CEO. But it was Brian Cornell's charge when he took over Target in 2014. And at that time, the company had just gone through a massive data breach. Hackers stole credit card information from as many as 40 million Target customers. On top of that, the year before, Target had acquired more than 100 stores from a Canadian retailer called Zellers. And the acquisition turned into a disaster. So fair to say this was not going to be an easy task. But Brian Cornell knew adversity. He'd already helped turn around companies like Safeway, Michaels, and Sam's Club. 
And long before that, as a kid, adversity and struggle were his day-to-day reality. I grew up in a fairly challenging environment. I lost my dad when I was young. My mom was effectively disabled after heart surgery. So I learned early on uh, the importance of performing in school and uh, the importance of work and the importance of sports. Hmm. Um, I talk a lot about the fact, Guy, that I learned as a kid that there was one, two, or three environments where there was a level playing field, where no one cared about who my dad was or what house we lived in or what car we drove. And that was in a classroom or on a playing field or at work. Hmm. And um, I don't think I've ever forgotten that. I mean, because of your mom's medical condition, there's just you and your brother and your mom, was she able to work? She was not. So I know all about what it's like to uh, grow up with assisted living. So, you know, I probably have worked since I was about 12 years old. I've had um, every possible job you can imagine, from stacking bricks in the summer to actually washing trucks at the Whitestone Distribution Center as a kid. Hmm. And we were also fortunate. I had two grandparents that were very involved in raising me as a kid. Hmm. So, you know, between my mom doing her very best and uh, two amazing grandparents, you know, they provided me a lot of support and direction growing up. So I guess um, after high school, you you went on to UCLA for uh, for college. And what was your plan? Were you like thinking of, of going into business at that point? Well, that wasn't part of the plan, Guy. And actually, if I step back, an uh, important inflection point was in my junior year at UCLA. Now, I was coaching high school football, and I actually had a conversation with the head football coach at that time, and he asked me what I was thinking about doing when I graduated. And I said, you know, I'm strongly considering uh, becoming a teacher, becoming a coach. And he asked me a series of very interesting questions. He said, you know, Brian, do you like to paint? And I remember his name was Bill Wilde. I said, Bill, I'm not much of a painter. He said, can you lay carpet? I said, not quite connecting the dots here. And he said, well, if you're going to be a high school teacher and coach football, you need a second job because these jobs don't pay very well. And he said, everybody on the staff who's doing this full time, well, they have part-time jobs to make sure that they can make ends meet. So I thought about that and probably reflected on kind of where I had come from and said, you know, focusing on a career in business might be a better path. And I really put my head down. And um, when I graduated from college, I went to work for the Gala Wine Company. That was in 1981. Brian would spend most of the next 20 years climbing the corporate ladder, first at Gallo, where he quickly impressed his bosses and got a leadership post, and then eventually at Tropicana, where Brian would run the North American division up until the time that PepsiCo bought the company out. He stayed on at Pepsi for several more years until one day he got a call from Safeway. And at that time, Guy, they had gone through a series of pretty challenging years. Hmm. Uh, negative comp store sales for multiple years. And, you know, they talked to me about this opportunity. They wanted someone with branding skills, with consumer focus to come in and help redefine the strategy. And I said no two or three times. And every time I hung up the phone and told my wife, you know, they'd call me again, uh, but I told them I'm not interested. She says, you know, that's great. But every time you hang up the phone, you seem disappointed that, You gave them the answer, and the answer was no. (laughs) So I finally worked my way out there and looked at the opportunity. And when I made the decision, a lot of my friends and a lot of my peers 
you know, gave me the phone call saying, really, Brian, what have you done? This company looks like it's in a very challenged position. The likelihood of success looks pretty low. If it doesn't work out, you know, we'll help you find another job someday. Hmm. But Safeway gave me a chance to see if I could apply some of my consumer packaged good experience hmm. and take that with me to Safeway. So what did you do? Like, what did you change? Well, it turned out to be an exceptional run. Uh, within a relatively short period of time, we were delivering positive comp store sales. Um, we were remodeling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stores hmm. every quarter. Um, redefined the brand portfolio, went from 80 brands when I arrived to what was a strategy to build, kind of power brands, and a lot of work to reposition the company. Um, I mean, some of the, some of the um, initiatives that came out at the time of your, under your leadership as CMO, this um, Ingredients for Life like marketing campaign, and, and I guess Safeway introduced the O Organics. Yes, we did. Became the number one organic brand in the United States. It's amazing. I mean, how, how did you create an environment for those? I, I have to assume that those ideas didn't just come out of your head, or, or maybe they did, I don't know. Um, or, or did they come from a team of people? Like, how, how did you create an environment that, you know, where, where people could kind of come up with those ideas that actually worked? You know, one guy, we spent a lot of time listening to the consumer, lots of focus groups, but importantly, a lot of time with the frontline team and the broader organization. Lots of town hall meetings, lots of Q&A sessions, and I take very little credit for what happened there. It was really driven by feedback from the team who understood where the opportunities were, understood what had to change, and led us to recognize that you know, there was a growing demand for organic products. There was a growing demand for a improved in-store experience and excitement. So I give all the credit to the consumer, that shopper, but to the team for formulating the ideas that delivered really exceptional results over a short period of time. So from Safeway... You are recruited to in 2007 to to run Michael's stores. I'm just curious. I mean, Safeway is a huge company. Um, why did you decide to go to Michael's? Was it was it was it a challenge? I mean, was, what was going on there that seemed like this is going to be a cool next step? Part of it was I've come to the organization at Safeway, recognizing that you know if I came in and made an impact, we saw improved performance. Mm. It had a path to becoming the CEO of the company. Hmm. And three and a half years into it, um, I sat down with the then CEO, Steve Bird. He said, you know, you've done an exceptional job of revitalizing the business, driving growth, re-energizing the brand. And you've also re-energized me. And I think I want to be here for another five or 10 years. Hmm. And it was a really helpful and candid conversation. And I stepped back and realized that if I had another five or 10 years to you know, my time at Safeway, it was probably going to put me on a path to perhaps be the CEO or perhaps age out. And I decided that while he was getting younger and re-energized, it was probably time for me to step away and think about new opportunities and new experiences. Yeah. So you go to to Michaels, and uh, this is a challenging company to run because I think the year you got there 
they were losing money, right? They had lost significant amount of money. Yes, losing money, highly leveraged, a lot of um, debt to manage each and every quarter. At a time when, if you go back to you know the last Great Recession, um, we were moving into this recessionary environment where you saw, obviously, steep declines in retail overall. And so what did, what was your plan? How were you going to turn this thing around? I mean, this is art supplies, framing, right? I mean, these, we know what Michael's stores are. Um, were you going to cut or were you going to, uh, you know, was there layoffs? Like, was, was there restructuring? Was there store closings? All of that, some of that? Yeah, actually, none of the above. Huh. Um, we spent a lot of time, again, understanding a very unique consumer. You know, they are crafters, they are engaged with their kids, they do things for you know, their family and for themselves. And for $20, that business provides a lot of joy and satisfaction for the consumer. So I spent a lot of time understanding the categories that were important. We put a lot of focus on improving supply chain and sourcing. So I personally spent a lot of time in Asia building a sourcing team building specific brands in an environment where there were few brands. Uh, there were lots of items, but very few brands. And a fair amount of focus on elevating the in-store experience because of the type of shopper that was in those stores. So, you know, I learned a lot about operating in that environment where every penny counts, when cash flow is really important because you've got debt to pay, you have pressure from an operating income standpoint and managing cash becomes a really critical area of focus um, each and every quarter. Hmm. So you, you stay there for a couple of years and when you leave, the company is profitable. It's, it's sort of back on its feet and you're recruited to go and run Sam's Club. You are now the CEO of a, of a I think Sam's Club is a significantly bigger company than, than Michael's, right? Oh, about 11 times larger. Wow. So I went from you know about a $5 billion company to uh, a company that was generating revenue in excess of $50 billion a year. Mm. Um, so a unique opportunity. What was the state of things when you got to Sam's Club? Again, reinvent a company and a brand that had been losing market share for several years. Yeah. And you know they wanted someone to step in and think differently about the business. Uh, get the business back to growth, regain market share. So when you get a phone call to say, we'd like you to come in and run a $50 billion company that's part of the largest retailer in the world. And you know, I had a very unique opportunity to come in from the outside into a company that had very few outsiders at that point. Hmm. So you moved to Bentonville, Arkansas? I sure did. You seem to kind of test your own ability to enter into new cultures as an outsider, which can be challenging because you you go to a company like, you know, whether it's Safeway or Michaels or Sam's, where there are people who have been there their entire careers, even people in the C-suites. How did you, how did you kind of, what did you do? I mean, would you go in and just kind of integrate right away, listen to, to, to how they operate? I mean, what was your kind of playbook? Well, I think throughout my career, um, I've always tried to be a good student when I've entered new corporations, different companies, different opportunities that I've had, and think about understanding the consumer, understanding the customer, hmm. doing my homework on competition, understanding the cost model, 
and then really drilling down on understanding the team and the people and the expertise that's inside of the organization. And from that, you know, collectively work with the teams to build a strategy that's going to drive differentiation and going to leverage the capabilities and the equity of the business and brand. So I've taken a very similar approach time and time again. I'm curious, as you have, you know, when you started out, right, at at Gallo and then Tropicana, this is like pre-email, right, you know, pre-cell phones. Um, So you just couldn't be contacted as easily as you can now, pre-sort of mass data. Today, you you probably get 100, 200 emails a day. There's all of this data, all this information that can help guide and drive decisions. Is it easier today for a a corporation to, you know, especially someone like you at the top of the corporation, to get all that information, all that data, all that incoming and use that to make better decisions? Or is it actually much, much more complex and harder to run a business today than it would have been 20 years ago? I think the answer is both. I think on some fronts, it's much easier because of the amount of data analytics that are available each and every day. But I think more and more, you've got to put a premium on how you synthesize that information. How do you simplify and clarify the learning? Because you can be overwhelmed by the data, Uh, the emails that keep coming at you each and every moment of each and every day, the amount of analytics in an environment like ours where there's millions and millions of transactions that take place every week. And I've clearly learned that, you know, if you ask people to do 20 things, it's a checklist. When you can glean that down to the four or five things that are going to have a huge impact each and every day, there's focus, you can build alignment, and it leads to superior execution. So how do you make the right choices and leverage all that data, all the analytics, all the insights to make the choices that are going to differentiate your business and drive impact against the things that are going to matter most for the consumer, the customers you serve, you serve and provide differentiation versus your competition. Okay, so you uh, leave Sam's Club to go back to PepsiCo in, in 2012, and, and I guess you're there for like two years before you get a call from Target, right? Well, I might step back. I, I left Sam's Club in 2012, and At that point in my career, I would have told you that was my most satisfying role, Hmm. and it was really hard to leave. But I made a decision back in 2012 that I was going to move back to the Northeast. My daughter lived there. We were going to kind of plant our roots, and I would spend the rest of my career at At PepsiCo, a company that I certainly respected. So I actually had no intention of ever going anywhere outside of PepsiCo for the balance of my wow. career. So that that idea when you when you went back to Pepsi in 2012 was this is where my roots my roots are here. I started out he, you know I was here early in my career. I'm coming back to take all this experience, wisdom and expertise I'd gained in these other places and I'm just going to hunker down and be be here in the northeast and become a grandparent and and retire and this is going to be it. This is going to be my swan song. That's what my wife would have told me. <laughs> And you know, while I'm there, there's the target data breach of 2013. There's the Canadian entry, and the company had rapidly 
moved into Canada um, in a very short period of time, opened up 133 stores, mm. built distribution centers, hired over 18,000 team members, and flipped the switch. And the Canadian business was not performing well. And I got a couple of phone calls um, asking me if I'd be interested in this target role. And I said, no. Hmm. I remember sitting in my backyard with a recruiter on a cell phone saying, hey, I've made a commitment to my family. I love the job I have. I'm in a big global role with a great company. And they called me back and said, hmm. well, if you're not interested, you know, the board would love to talk to you about you know, profiles of individuals that might be right for the role. Right. And my son played a big part in this. Actually, both my kids did because um, my son said, you know, dad, this would be a great role for you. And my daughter said, you know, by the way, Target's an amazing brand, dad. Um, and I finally got to a point where my family was willing to make another change. Uh, my wife, after 14 or 15 moves around the world, said, tell me more about Minneapolis. And I had so much respect for the brand, the company. I had so many years of interfacing with Target from a competitive standpoint and from a vendor standpoint. I looked at this opportunity to come in during a challenging time and take this iconic brand and get it back into the winner's circle. It became almost impossible to say no. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. 
Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. You arrive to Target in August of 2014 to run the company. I think that uh, in 2013, Target's profit, even though the revenue increased, the profit declined by like 34%. So uh, this was not, I have to assume this is not an easy time when you arrived. Yeah, easy was not a term I would use to define the early days and months I spent with the company. Right. Now, clearly, coming out of the data breach, you had to rebuild trust with the U.S. consumer. The Canadian business, as you know and others know, was losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Let, let me just clarify this for people who don't know the story. 2013, Target opens like 130 stores all across Canada and these in, in these stores that were Zellers. It was a Canadian retailer uh, and it, it never really took off for some reason. Target Canada just didn't take off. Maybe the, the, the Zellers locations weren't great or they were the stores weren't designed in the way that Target had designed its stores in the U.S., from what I understand, in 20, I think in Christmas of 2014, around that time, soon after you were CEO, you went to Target Canada. You went to Montreal just to see, it was like the Saturday before Christmas, just to see how, how the store was doing. And was this just, this was just like a, like a fact-finding trip that you took? Well, actually, my first week at Target, um, after meeting the team and spending time with the, the leadership organization, I decided I should hop on a plane and go up to Toronto and get a sense for the state of the business. And for months and months, we did a lot of research, trying to understand why the brand wasn't working there, how the Canadian consumer felt about Target. And you know, we quickly recognized that because of some of the challenge locations that you mentioned, because of some of the supply chain issues that we faced internally that were leading to out-of-stock positions when consumers were shopping the store. Yeah. Because of some questions about the value that we were bringing to the market, we not only disappointed a Canadian consumer that was actually really excited about Target coming to Canada, mm. in some ways we had started to offend them. Hmm. And when I went up there on that weekend, just before Christmas in 2014, you know, I walked through some stores that from a presentation standpoint and execution standpoint had improved significantly, but the Canadian consumer wasn't going to give us a second chance. That you lost, you'd already lost them. We had lost the consumer. I walked around and saw you know, a sea of empty stores while right next door, our competitors had Canadian shoppers filling each and every aisle. Hmm. And I realized that you know, had we not performed during the holiday the likelihood of getting through another year without completely distracting our needed focus on the U.S., it was going to cripple the company. So barely a year after Target enters Canada, you announced that it's going to close. This is, this is going to cost Target $5.5 billion. Would you, is it fair to say that at that point in your career, this was the most consequential executive decision you had made? Without any challenge, that is on the top of the list. Hmm. I mean, just listening to you say that again, you know, makes me somewhat shiver. Yeah. When you think about, you know, a multi-billion dollar write-off, um, the fact that we're going to close stores, 
we're going to say goodbye to, again, close to 20,000 team members. That's a really tough decision. And as I stand here today, it's one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make. But we wouldn't be here in 2019 delivering the kind of results we're delivering in the U.S. had we still been managing a troubled Canadian business Mm. that was losing hundreds of millions of dollars every year, but even more importantly, was distracting our focus on the core U.S. brand and company. At the end of the day, the real issue was the core U.S. business was losing traffic, Mm. was losing market share, and losing relevance. Yeah. And all of our focus really need to be placed on restoring the momentum in the U.S. business. I read that, and and you must have seen the statistic, that as of December of 2014, 37% of Americans had browsed a Target store or its website in the preceding four weeks. But in 2007, it was 53% of Americans. So that must have been a pretty alarming statistic to read. Now, it gets back to understanding the consumer, understanding what's happening with your customer, our guest, understanding what competitors were doing to impact the business, Hmm. understanding the impact it was having on our P&L, and importantly, understanding the impact this was happening or having on the team. But you can see the trend lines, right? You can see where you know, there are the, the core customers are still coming in, but you've got all kinds of competition coming from online retailers. I mean, let, and let's just talk about this for a sec. I think I think Amazon's value alone is greater than all consumer products goods, you know, combined. In the world. I mean, it's just astounding. That's correct. I mean, it's, it's yes, growth it and value is astounding. Meantime, there's competition from Walmart, and then of course there are businesses that you're that targets in that where you compete with Safeway and 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 you know uh, CVS and other brands. In in 2017, you introduce this plan to spend seven billion dollars uh, and and a bit and a bit more to modernize, basically to, to update stores, to remodel stores, which is like doubling down on a part of the business that the tech world and a lot of retail analysts say, you know, uh, that's going away. Retail, brick and mortar retail is going away. It's all going to move online. And you decide to actually double down on this thing. Can, can you explain your thinking behind that? Well, many people described it as a big bet. But the reality was we spent a lot of time as a leadership team in 2015 and 2016 carefully testing elements of our strategy, Hmm. remodeling 25 stores in Los Angeles, beginning to roll out new smaller formats in urban markets and on college campuses. We did a lot of work from an own brand standpoint to re-energize and revitalize our own brands. We looked at the changes we needed to make from a supply chain and a fulfillment standpoint to use our stores as convenient fulfillment hubs across the country. And we looked at the investments that were going to be required in our team. So while some looked at that decision back in February of 2017 as the company placing a big bet, we had spent a lot of time 
researching and testing and modifying our plans <laughs> and had a great sense of confidence that while many of our competitors were going in a different direction, were closing stores, were cutting costs, were trying to save their way from quarter to quarter, many people were looking at the headlines saying, bricks and mortar, it's going to go away. Right. The business, it's dead. Everything, everything's going online. I had, a, I remember walking around San Francisco in 2015, 2016 with a, a pretty successful VC, and they said, "Yeah, that's retail's dead." I mean, that's that's what everyone's saying here. Brick and mortar is dead. Many people believe that, but I think the one group that wasn't asked for an opinion was the consumer. Mm. And as we talk to consumers, consumers still like shopping physical stores. You, know, you talked about it earlier today. You know, in 2019, the projection is 85% of all U.S. retail dollars will be spent in a store. But when we talk to consumers back then and again today, if you're going to shop a physical store, you want a great in-store experience. Mm. So when we made this announcement in February 2017, you know, back to days in your life that you'll always remember. Um, so I'll remember... You know, February 28th, like I will my birthday and my anniversary. When we push the button at 6.30 in the morning and I'm watching the group at CNBC read this press release saying Target's about to spend $7 billion of capital on stores, another billion dollars of operating income, investing in wages in the team. The reaction, if you looked at the tape, was there must be a typo. Hmm. So I watched our stock price start to decline. Hmm. And a few hours later, I've got to stand up on stage in front of hundreds of analysts and shareholders, more on a webcast, and explain to them why this very different path is going to deliver great results in the long term. Hmm. And we talked about the fact that this was not a decision that was made for the next couple of quarters or the next couple of years. It's to make sure that Target's going to be relevant for decades to come. You had your worst one-day decline in nine years following this announcement. I think the, the stock price dropped by like 12%, right? And you're, you're up there saying, look, we have to think long-term, right? Which is what any responsible CEO should do. But investors, Wall Street... They don't care about the long term. They, they're, they're focused on the next quarter. So I have to assume that a part of you was nervous about that decline. I mean, because at that point, there are people who are going to say, we want his head. We want him at it. We want this guy gone. Those were all the reports. I will <laughs> always remember having to walk up the stairs um, to start that presentation. Mm. And each step looked like it was about 10 feet high. Yeah. But I had confidence that we had done the work, that we had tested and validated all of our plans. I had confidence that we had a team that was committed and aligned around the commitments, the investments, the strategy we put in place. And we just needed time to put proof points on the board. But that was a very difficult day. I watched the stock price decline. And when I finished up that presentation, I spent a little time on air at lunchtime with the media. Hmm. And one of the final questions was, 
Bryant, how long do you have? Will the board support you? Do you think you'll be here next year? Yeah. So there were lots of questions, lots of doubts, but we had as a team the personal confidence that we were making the right decision. And 2019 uh, is proof of that. Uh, I think Target's about to or just delivered its one of its best uh, quarters in, in more than a decade, uh, almost 15 years. Target has some inbuilt advantages, right? It's sort of the hipper brand, right? Your, your, your customers are different than Walmart customers, more, maybe slightly more urban, maybe a little bit more younger. But the flip side of that is that your customers are also more likely to buy things online than a typical Walmart customer, right? So what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean for the next 10 years? As it's you know, as it seems clear that more and more purchases, more and more retail transactions will happen online. Guy, I don't think it's an either or. Hmm. I think as we sit here today, we focus a lot on the power of and, A and D. Hmm. So we're at our best when we bring both our physical and digital assets together. They want to place an order with Target.com and now pull into one of 1,400 parking lots in the country and have us put the order in their trunk within two minutes while the kids are asleep in the back seat. Mm. But on Saturday, she wants to come back and get a cup of Starbucks coffee and walk around the store and click off the list of things she needs and then walk around and say, all right, what do I want for myself? So it's not an either or. Yeah. And our strategy is focused on making sure we reinvent and enhance the in-store experience. We bring the brand into new urban neighborhoods and college campuses where we haven't been before. We bring unique own brands that you can only find at Target into our stores and available online. We have now close to 1,900 locations. Yeah. We're virtually in every neighborhood in America. So fulfillment's important, but the most important investment was in our team, in wages, in training, in development. That's really what brings it all together. You know, I recently went on a, an architectural tour of Chicago, which was just amazing. And of course, you see the former Sears Tower, which is now called the Willis Tower, Sears, right? It was a catalog that was created and you, you go by Marshall Fields and see, you know, the, this beautiful retail store that's now Macy's and you pass by the the old buildings of Montgomery Ward, which are now condos on the river and a park and, right, I mean, th- those companies aren't around, right? And and they were hugely iconic brands, JCPenney's and, and others. And of course, you look at Target today and you think, well, of course, it's going to be here forever. You know, it's, it's a cool brand. It's a hip brand. Um, but at the same time, right, if you look at these past experiences, there's always the possibility that in 30 years, that could happen. Target could be like JCPenney or Sears or Marshall Fields or Montgomery Ward or whatever it might be. How do you position a company to make sure that it's not part of an architectural tour in 30 years where people say, this used to be where Target was. I think we've got to make sure that inside of the company culture is this focus on always looking externally, 
on being curious, on understanding the consumer and new consumer trends, on being experts around our competitors, and always being willing to look at the lessons learned from the past. I was driving in this morning, and someone was talking about the fact that Sears should have been Amazon. Right. They had physical stores. They had this catalog business. They're in multi-categories. But they didn't evolve with the consumer trends, and they didn't react quick enough. So back to February of 2017, one of the theories that we talked about was that there are going to be billions of dollars of retail sales up for grabs, market share opportunities, as some of these companies that don't have the balance sheet, don't have the cash flow, don't have the ability to invest, to reinvent their business, simply close stores, if not go away. And while I don't celebrate that, it's actually hard to sit back if you're in the retail space and listen to you talk about some of those iconic American brands that have gone away. But for us, as long as we're looking around corners and thinking about the consumer and the guests we serve, Hmm. understanding the role of technology, understanding competitors, and always willing to iterate and reinvest and reinvent the business, we'll stay relevant for years to come. When you think about where you came from and, you know, the, the fact that you really did come from such a modest background, I mean, the, the, the chances that you would be running one of the biggest retail, uh, you know, operations in the world, given, you know, the fact that you grew up with single mom and public assistance and, and that you're doing this today is pretty, is pretty remarkable. I mean, do you ever reflect on that? Do you ever think about that, that journey you took? I don't talk about it a lot, but I probably think about it every day. You know, my kids ask me, you know, geez, Dad, why can't you ever just relax and sit back? And I probably wake up every day with the memory of where I started Hmm. and, you know, a drive to make sure I never end up where I started. And I think it's why I can remain grounded and humble and focused why I think it's so important to remain approachable. And I never forget where I came from. That's Brian Cornell, CEO of Target. In the five years since Brian's become CEO, the stock price has been hovering at its highest levels in history. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built-It Productions.